March 18, 1990, the most audacious art heist of all time took place at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Check out season one of Empty Frames for a 12-episode dive into the Gardner heist. This season, we will be exploring other art crimes and significant moments in the art world before returning to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. This is Empty Frames. Welcome back to Empty Frames. I'm Tim here today in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown with Lance. What's up, Lance? How's it going, Tim? It's going well today. And Lance, as you know, this is our season two season finale. And what a great way to go out. First of all, it feels really good to be here. Yeah. In Wormtown, in our little black box. And we were joined by the Muddy River fact checker. And he sat in front of the mic and he got into some of the details that that have been sort of irking us a bit about the uh, Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum heist. And surely irking him, he has been uh, mentioning these things and uh, and tweeting about them, and we really get into the minutia here, Lance, of two uh, moments in particular. Right. I think we couldn't have done any more than that because getting into the minutia might be putting it lightly. The Muddy River Fact Checker is an extremely detailed individual, and we get into the crime scene photo of Rick Abbott, who is duct taped and handcuffed down in the basement of the museum. And we go through the details of that photo, really pick it apart and yeah. question why and how for the most part. And check out these photos in the show notes, and we'll try to put them on our social media and such as well. But uh, the photos are really weird. It You see some of the positioning of the duct tape. It's it's sort of weirdly wrapped around his head. And then there, if you really look into it, there's these things around where he's sitting, like a knife. That's odd to have a little knife near where this guy is tied up. Yeah, an, an open pocket knife. That's just one of the many questions that the Muddy River Fact Checker raises. And... Just to find these answers, I mean, we don't really know any of these answers because we haven't spoken to, obviously, the people who taped him up or to Rick Abbott. So, but the the questions are raised, and it's something that I think if anybody is interested in the heist will realize that they've had these questions as well. It's just you needed someone to say, well, why is it this, this way? Right. And the second part of this chat with the Muddy River fact checker, or Muddy as we call him, uh, is we we go into the minutia once again on the night before video, and this video was recorded about 24 hours before the heist took place on March 18th, 1990, and th this is like a security video that happens outside the Gardner Museum, and then you can also see a couple of the guards inside the museum. And again, it raises some questions: why it was released, when it was released. And what's going on in the video itself. And the irony is that we call him Muddy, but he actually does the opposite. He's trying to clear up the, the mud. He's trying to clear through the muck. So we really hope you enjoy this conversation. It is as detailed as it gets. You need to check out the video and the picture. And stay tuned to the very end. Listen to what we talk about. No. And stay tuned to the very end. We give an informal review of the sister podcast to the Isabella Stewart Garden Museum Heist, Last Scene. So it's an informal review that you're going to want to hear. Okay, so that's it for season two, Lance. Enjoy this conversation, and we will see you in a few months. For season three. All right, welcome back to Empty Frames. We have a very special guest in studio today. It is the Muddy River Fact Checker, somebody who checked in with us uh, several times over the course of season one and gave us all sorts of nuggets of information. If there was ever an, a question as to a detail or some part of the investigation or even a theory, the Muddy River Fact Checker was there for us. So thank you, sir, for being here nestled 
here in the Crawl Space Studios. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you guys and work with you guys on it. So well, find someone else who's interested. <laughs> yeah, thanks yeah. a lot for uh, for all your help in season one and for your continued yeah. help uh, throughout the course of this podcast. So we really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, why uh, such interest in the case? I stumbled onto something um, that was related to the case and people that I thought might have been involved. And so then I started looking for looking at all the evidence and trying to fit in. It didn't conveniently fit into what the narratives were going on that were going on at the time in terms of who did it. So um, I decided to look into it more and try to see if I could really, I would have been relieved to eliminate the people that I thought were involved, but I wasn't able to do that. And then I kept looking closer and closer. And and then I found that it's kind of a rich topic and there's a lot of history involved and, the more I looked, and sometimes I would relook, and I would see something different. So, for instance, with the crime scene photos, which I guess we were going to talk about today, the first thing that hit me was, I don't think the crime scene photos have been in the public domain for that long. I think maybe around 2013 or so. Ah. So, but I'm not sure, but that's pretty much when I see them showing up. And prior to that, they would people would say, oh, the guards were gagged. Or, you know, they were manacled or different things. And and people didn't question it. Well, you didn't really have a picture to compare it with and see, you know, if that was what you saw was what was being reported. And I wasn't really that skeptical about it. But I but the first time I remember looking at it was in closely was in 15 around the time of the anniversary. And it was the photo that's taken from uh, Abat's left side. And, he, and you can see that he's smiling. And the smile struck me as being similar to, I don't know if you know, there was another case, um, the Charles Stewart case, about six months previous. Yeah. yeah. And that was a case where Charles Stewart killed his wife, his pregnant wife, and shot himself in the stomach. And I remember prior to it coming out that he had actually done it, he claimed to have been a victim mm-hmm. and had shot himself in the, in the stomach and gave his brother the gun. Right. So, and there was this Herald photo that was quite famous at the time, a tabloid photo. I remember seeing it in the Boston Herald, and it showed him in the car being rescued. And I remember thinking that his face didn't look right, that there was a smile on his face. And and I also, if you look at that crime scene photo of Abath, he's smiling. So I can kind of imagine the photographer saying, oh, big smile, Rick, and Rick smiling. But given the fact that he he's supposedly being there for seven hours, but but I was already looking at this as someone who's suspicious. I just want to interject real quick. Yeah. You're saying that he's smiling, but he still has the duct tape wrapped around from his chin up over his the top of his head and then around his nose to the back of his head, through his hair. It looks like a, a, like a medieval mask right. that he's wearing, and he's smiling through that. So when you give the hypothetical that the photographer says, oh, smile, Rick, I would probably, if I was in Rick's position and I had been there overnight, I would probably go, hey, can someone get the goddamn duct tape off my face first? Right. Right. So I think I it's- I think I'd be smiling. Maybe he's smiling yeah. through gritted teeth. Maybe it's- Yeah. Like he's, come on, motherfucker. Yeah, well, I think he, I would think he would be kind of, it would be sort of a weary smile. Yeah. Right? And so it never, came, it never occurred to me that, so I'm looking at that, I'm going, I don't really- think that, that doesn't that seems a little long incongruous that he's smiling that but that well, but then never thought that wait a second he doesn't have any tape over his mouth he could have he could have actually spoken i probably probably didn't occur to me until a couple of years later that just having a piece of tape wound around your jaw does not make it so that you couldn't speak and he's not in any sense gagged it's a really bizarre formation i think we, yeah. we talked about this a little the bit tape Right. The the duct tape on Abbott's face and head is very, very strangely uh, yeah. constructed, I would say. I've never seen anything like that. I wouldn't imagine anybody who is gagged and duct taped to come out like that. Like, it just doesn't doesn't compute to me. Well, it doesn't have any function from for doing what it's supposed to do except for... Right, it's not covering his eyes. Yeah. It's really, if you well, look closely, it? it's oh, really... His hair's more covering his eyes. Well, he has one strip. The, the piece that goes around his jaw is one strip, and it, it really only just barely makes it around to one time. So, I mean, if you just worked your jaw a little bit... It, so I really find that... Yeah. And it's also very smooth, so I find it doubtful that, first of all, it has no function, really, well, in terms of, like, keeping him quiet. And 
It doesn't look like it. He's been had that with that smooth tape that he has moved his jaw and that it's actually been on there for seven hours. Yeah, that's a good point. And there's it. It looks like, and I don't know. It looks like down here, maybe that's his shirt, or down by his chin there, you see that little piece of gray. Is that his shirt, or is that a piece of the duct tape that could have been around his mouth that I'm was not, taken I've off? I've always, yeah, I'm not sure what that is. That looks like kind of like maybe a the piece. Collar. of collar. He had an extra piece of duct tape. Oh, oh yeah. no, I think you're right. I think it's probably the shirt. It could be either. No, I don't think it is the tape. I think it might be more of the shirt that's coming through. But if you're there for seven hours, you know, and give, giving them the, the yeah. benefit of the doubt, uh, then you would, like you said, kind of adjust it yourself. Even if you couldn't get your hands out, you would move your jaw. You would. Uh, so I could see like it not looking the way in this photo that it looked when the person put it on him. Like maybe the one that goes around and is kind of covering his nose in the photo originally started by covering his eyes. Okay, well, let's take a look at that as if you look at the other photo, Mm -hmm. the tape that's covering his eyes. Sorry to interrupt. This is from the right side. Yeah. Um, It goes underneath his ear. Now, if you were going to put tape over somebody's eyes and the purpose was to put a, you wouldn't go under their ear. You'd probably make sure you had a good seal over the top of their forehead and then wrap it yeah. around that They'll probably way. hook it over the ear actually. yeah over the like, ear if tuck anything. it in yeah or or across so the ear but not down. but i mean putting it under the ear is not really a sincere attempt at covering the eyes and in fact he says that he could see well yeah and he claims that because of the heat and perspiration from the boiler that the that the tape had gone down but it goes down uniformly and if you and it never really goes above his to his to his forehead so really, if you put tape across somebody's eyes, I mean, I think if you were doing that, you'd want to stay away from the eye area. It's, okay. And so to me, it just looks like a let's very try this, insincere let's, attempt let's, at covering his eyes. Lance, let's get you a wig. Let's get some duct tape. We'll go to the boiler room right across the hallway. We have one. We have one. We'll set you there for about eight hours. What song do I have to hum? I will. He says it was I Will Be Released, but I think it was You Can't Touch This. By, by MC Ham, because that <laughs> right. was climbing the yeah, charts. Right. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm game. Give me 14 years to grow hair like that. <laughs> well, we'll just get a wig. Well, how about a simpler one is just putting the tape. I mean, after seven hours, he has his feet, his two sneakers are touching, and he has tape around his ankles, and the pants are still crimping from the tape. Now, I think after seven hours of sitting there, you would... You know, someone who's a ro- you know, in a band and is 23 years old and works as a security guard has reasonably strong legs, can put could be able to stretch that tape out so that it would, if you t- put your legs together like your feet together like that, it would sag. Yeah, mm. it wouldn't just be able to crimp. I mean, you would think he'd be trying to like free his legs or just be able to move his legs. I'd like to get back to the duct tape on his uh, head for a second. Okay. It does seem like a completely useless use of duct tape, and I'm. I, it almost reminds me of like a Naked Gun movie where they tell them to you know tape up the tape up this guy, and then they use all the tape on the wrong parts of him. Like right. they they really focused on his nose more than anything. Well, my theory is is that not that they focused on his nose, is that he taped himself. I mean, it would take a lot. Assuming if someone was involved in the... So this is the thing is like you say, okay, let's examine the possibility that he was involved. If he was involved, would he trust someone who's robbing the Gardner heist to tape himself? You know, that would take a lot of leap of faith. I'm not sure I could trust anyone, never mind a, a robber to uh, tape me up like that. And the other thing is then why... Then he has to be taped up for seven hours or f- um, five hours from when they left, whereas if he waits until morning, then he, he has the advantage of not having to endure the discomfort of being tied up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm with you that I think the uh, the head formation of the duct tape, let's start at the top, okay? Right. I think that is suspicious, um, but I can't really say that it's suspicious past a level of this has been on for seven hours, you know? So starting there, I will say the top of his head, the, his head is inconclusive in my mind. Right. Well, if you look at the overall effect on the other photos. Well, yeah. Well, yeah, let's let's keep moving, right. moving okay. down his body. Before we go on, do you want, Lance, can I get an answer from you? What do you think based on the head? Is this suspicious? Is it, do you think this is Well, I mean, we've never looked at the tape in such detail with anyone and we have the, you know, Muddy River fact checker here. So this I, I don't want to say it's suspicious and and say in any way that Rick had something to do with the heist itself. But like I said before, it is a very useless 
application of duct tape if the purpose is to conceal yourself or yeah. why would that be around his head anyway they've, they've already seen him yeah i mean rick has already seen the 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 thieves well let's not let's not move past the photo let's just stick with what what we look at, like right, breaking okay. down just the photo like based on that because i don't want to jump like oh this means he's guilty or something like that i don't want to go that right. far with it okay <laughs> well just looking at it from a holistic view how would this photo look different how would rick look different if he had only been uh, in that situation of tape and, and handcuffs for seven minutes instead of seven hours. Like, there doesn't seem to be okay. any kind of entropy have, has gone on at all from, okay. from seven minutes to seven hours. His his shirt is still seems to have a crease in it. Supposedly he was, you know, near a boiler and there was sweating. And well, he doesn't. He looks seems to look fairly comfortable and not disheveled in any way. I look more disheveled driving here, <laughs> I think, than he does I mean, the, after the, seven hours. So the thieves left his mouth open. Right, right, so he could breathe. And sing, I shall be released. And sing. Um, his nose is kind of covered, but we're unsure here if that happened uh, like after he Due was- Due to slippage. Right, right. We Our kind of theory, I think, here was that it probably started at the eyes and maybe slipped down to his nose. Um, but that doesn't make any sense to cover, uh, if you're a robber, it doesn't make any sense to cover the guy's nose. When he's, he... he's in the basement. He's not watching you guys do this, and he's already seen you. Yeah, that- that too. And he's and he's secured to right be right in front of that the control panel there or the electrical box panel. Well, is he quest, is he secured is a question well, we're, too. We haven't so. gotten there yet. Yeah. So let's but the, the the piece of tape that goes around his nose and kind of around his eyes is completely useless. We're all agreeing to that. Yeah. It maybe okay. it could make it so that he couldn't breathe through his nose, but I don't see why that's a problem for the crooks. In terms of the crooks, they would want him to make you know, maybe try to make it so he couldn't hear or speak or see, and they have failed in all of those. Yeah, they, they weren't trying to kill him, you know, right. and, and they, they, they would have gagged his mouth right. if they didn't want him to breathe. It's, right. it's Again, it's almost like you're watching, like a, you're looking at a still from a, a parody movie mm-hmm. because there's so much tape on him that's, that's not achieving any purpose, and there's no reason to do it in the first place. Mm-hmm. And going back to the Empty Frames episode with Marge Galas, she was a roommate with the other guard, Randy, and she said there was quite a lot of trauma from being there. I can imagine. You know, she said, you know, he from the tape and everything that he was not in good shape at the end of the day, and yet um, he looks like he's in pretty good shape and managed to go to the Grateful Dead concert that night, and doesn't seem to be have really experienced the trauma consistent with seven hours in sitting there. All right, so let's let's move down. Okay. His body a little bit. Do you want to uh, talk about his legs first? Or do you want to talk about what's going on behind his hands and his hands first? Well, I think we covered the the ankles, which I think. Well, I'm not done with the ankles. I okay. got more on that. Okay. Well, why don't we why don't we talk about well, that? Well, see, I think in this photo here, from the one taken from his right, his his leg is clearly over his other one, right? Yeah. This doesn't go down all the way. Uh, but looks like one is kind of folded over, like at, the other one at at ankles, right? Is that yeah. On, yeah, on, but on this, this photo, one, but on this one, it doesn't seem. like But in other photos, it doesn't seem like that. And yeah. the one taken from his left side, it doesn't seem like that at all. Right. Uh, so if that is the case, then that means that he had plenty of room to wiggle around and make himself a little more comfortable there. Right. Right. So this first photo that you're talking about, just to be super clear, it cuts off right at his knee, and it looks like it looks like his right leg is crossed over. Mm-hmm. Over his left. Over his at, left at, at the ankle. Right. And then there's another picture. Where you can see his feet and they're bound by duct tape, and it doesn't at the look ankle. like that. Oh, he's definitely not. Yeah, it's he's not there in that one. And but even the position further up his leg, where the other photo would have cut it off, mm-hmm. is it's it's off. It's not right. It, it's clearly not crossed. So that over. seems kind of inconsistent, right? Right. And then another aspect of the tape around the the ankles is, assuming that after seven hours that you could stretch the tape out, then you'd be able to walk. Yeah. You could you could hobble yes. to the stairs and make your way up upstairs unless you were um, handcuffed to something, which is a, another phase of this. So right. maybe someone whoever found him first started removing the tape, and they started with his legs, and then they took the picture, well, or they took the picture and then removed the tape and took another picture. Nope, I I think there's plenty of room there. I think see, I think in the in the shot that you can see his feet. It does look like the tape is tightly bound, but I think that's tightly bound to his pants. Like I don't think there's no room there in the middle. I think you could, you know, could slip a board in. I think there's probably enough room there for him to slip one leg over the yeah. other for sure. 
Well, he hit, looks about like he has about as much trauma as um, Taylor Swift in the Mean video here, which is uh, tied to the railroad track. Well, try it yourself. Put put your ankles together right now, and then see how much more room you need to actually pop one over the other. And you don't need much; you just right. need a little bit. And that also means then that you don't need much to to uh, kind of duck walk, as Rick likes to say. He was adept at to up the stairs or over to the stairs and easily could have uh could be explained by fear potentially he right. didn't want to go up there if these guys are still there maybe right. they're aggressive if he shows his face at that point but after like six hours let's say after why five would they be hours, there yeah and why why wouldn't he just make make a slight attempt there or consider it maybe he did well one explanation is is that he claims he was handcuffed to an electrical box okay great so let's Let's talk about uh, about that because um, it doesn't seem like there's any evidence of that based on the photos. No, I don't. I don't see any electrical box. And then that in the police report in one spot it says that he was uh, handcuffed to the pole, but I think that was referring to the other guard okay. who was on a pole that was on the sink. And then um, Anthony Amoria said on more than one occasion that he was handcuffed to a pipe. Okay. So we have a pole, a pipe an electrical box, but it really in the crime scene photo and both Anthony Amoria and Stephen Kirchian said that he was forced to stay where he is because they needed to get, get the photo yeah. in, in the right place. Okay. He is sitting in front of several electrical boxes. Yep. There's a, that's clear. a drain pump. There's something that's marked fan motor and looks like a, I don't know, like a, some sort of functioning switch or buttons uh there's like a conduit pipe that it looks like pump looks like he's uh looks like it's coming down from from inside the the panel and if you zoom in on his wrist that could be duct tape or that could be handcuffs it looks like handcuffs i was gonna say it looks more like duct tape to me it is reflective though it kind of seems to maybe reflect a little bit from the flash but does so doesn't the duct tape yeah well if he if it is duct tape then i would say someone helped him get in that situation because you, I don't think you could put handcuffs on and then put duct tape over it. So I think it's either just handcuffs or maybe he he was um, tied up by somebody else because I really don't see, supposedly they did put duct tape around the handcuffs. I don't see it there and I don't see how you could put handcuffs on and then additionally put duct tape on But did they wrist. just have like a massive amount of duct tape and they were just curious how to use more duct tape? Like, well, why, we don't know what the other we don't know what the other guard looks like either. Yeah, that doesn't make much logistical sense. They they ran duct out of duct tape on Rick and then, yeah, yeah, and they were like, "Oh, what are we going to do with the other guy?" Yeah, I don't know. We'd we'll, we'll love to hear the official uh, word on that. What, what that actually is, um, handcuffs or duct tape, or both, or both. Okay, so if he's handcuffed, he's got both of the bracelets from the cuffs on both wrists, and then the chain parts going around the. The pole, in theory, that would be the part that the pipe. Yeah. Okay. That, that would. Well, keep I think him they there. said there was a second set of handcuffs. Two sets of handcuffs. Yeah, they One definitely. For each hand and well, they definitely the other... mentioned two sets of handcuffs with the other guard. It's yeah. not mentioned here, but doesn't look like that here. It looks like his arms are definitely touching, like his wrists are touching here. Yeah. One hand's folded under. Yeah. Very similar to his ankles in, right. in that picture. Looks like the pole is about maybe. An inch and a half or two inches in diameter. Now, what what else is going on right there on that landing that he's kind of sitting, leaning against is uh, un- under these boxes, these electrical boxes, which, like we said, are behind him, but we can't see any evidence of him actually being chained to it. But what is going on in this landing? There's, there's like three matchbooks. Right. Well, there does look to be something like a pole, but then it, it looks like a piece of wood that maybe balsa wood that would easily snap or or that his handcuffs aren't really on the other side of it. Really but there is say. some other things here. There's a, what I could, I don't see how that could be anything other than a Swiss Army knife behind him. That definitely looks so like a it knife. It looks like it has a little insignia. Maybe it's some sort of generic knockoff of yeah. a Swiss Army knife. A little jackknife. But, but it's a it's a pocket knife. It's a pocket knife. A yeah, very it's a yeah. folding pocket. Yeah. 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 And if it's not, then I think it's reasonable to ask what. Well, then what is it? And why right? is it there? Yeah. Maybe the maybe the thieves left it there for him to try to get. You know, and release himself. Was this a James Bond movie? Yeah. Well, I or mean, no, if he, no, but like, if he wasn't involved, there's no explanation for the, the. Is there one for having a leaving him there with a pocket knife? I, otherwise, I would just say, I mean, there's a bunch oh. of other trash kind of on that landing, or other stuff that you could 
called junk, like these matchbooks. There seems to be some kind of wrapper, and there's like a looks like a window. That looks like a ticket. Yeah, it looks like uh, a almost like ticket. blueprints or something like that. It looks like there's a mess right there on that landing where he's sitting. I mean, everyone's seen a messy basement, right? And there's a lot of things that that are weird there if you look at it really in in detail, but. At well, a I think museum, they, I don't see why a knife would be sitting there. Right. Or or matches would, I think just out of an abundance of caution, they would remove any matches or anything that might, you know, I mean, he could start a fire to call attention. There's some. You would think paper. they'd remove yeah. the knife. or Yeah, the, the knife and the matches. Yeah. Maybe they left the knife. Here, I'm theorizing. Maybe they left the knife so for whoever was coming in the next day would find them and then they would have a knife to cut the duct tape off of these guys. Because okay. by all accounts, they seem to be treated pretty nicely by okay. the thieves. Alternative thought. Uh, the paintings, some of them were cut out of the frames. Uh, there's a knife con- conspicuously behind one of the guards. Um, has that knife been run against the knife from the frames? I mean, we're looking for a... It's not a murder, so but but it's a weapon, like right, like a, a murder weapon in quotes. Uh, and then there's a weapon right here behind one of the guards that could probably have done that job. Uh, you're not going to find blood on it. Maybe you'd find some stitching, but you should be able to forensically see if that was the same knife. Fingerprint it. Well, so was it collected as crime scene evidence at the time of the robbery? And I've never seen any reference to. I mean, I noticed the knife was there. It hasn't, the pic, like I said, the picture has only been around in the public view for maybe five years, I think. It's, it's not in the public domain. There's nothing about a pocket knife or matches being found in any of the descriptions, like in any of the books or news stories that I've seen. We never hear, though, about the thieves, like their actual weapon, right? We hear, oh, maybe it could have been They're, a razor blade. A box cutter. Could have been here. a box cutter. Yeah. But- we, we never heard of a search for a box cutter or we never heard, oh, this guy was apprehended, uh, you know, and he suspiciously had a box cutter in his pocket, you know, or anything like right. that. Like, there's never been any talk of this weapon used other than, oh, it was probably a box cutter. What if it was a knife? Yeah, I, I don't know if you could make that kind of a cut because they're cut very neatly under the frame. So I don't know, but it could be that that was the, I mean, you would think that they would be at least looking into that to see if there was any remnants on there. Seems a weird place to put your, like you said, murder weapon when you're done with it. Well, another theory is if he did tape himself at the last minute because it appears that he hasn't been taped very long to me or um, confined there and handcuffed, that he hurriedly had, that he had those items in his fanny pack and he needed the knife to cut the duct tape and he cut some strips and just started emptying his fanny pack and he had matches and this looks like maybe candy wrappers to me. It does kind of look like a ticket. I'm kind of with you there. It does kind of look like a ticket. Might be his Grateful Dead ticket. It could be. So we did want to talk about the night before the Gardner heist surveillance video that right, was okay. released by the FBI, was it 2000? 2015, August 16, August 6, 2015. Okay. This see? is why yeah. we need yeah. you. <laughs> so, uh, okay. So let's hear your thoughts on this video because I know we've talked about it and we've, uh, we, we heard Marge Gallus on season one of Empty Frames say that she was sure that it was the director of security of the Gardener, right. Larry O'Brien. Right. And I really want to, I think, I'm a fan of Empty Frames, and I think the Marge Galis episode was one of the best. We but agree. I, but I do, I do disagree with her that it's the um, security, su- the assistant security supervisor, Larry O'Brien. Can you go back for people who aren't aware? It is, it is pretty widely known what the night before video is, right. but can you synopsize that? For anybody okay. who's like, oh, what's that? Yeah, we and, can go okay. through it, yeah. too. Yeah. All right. Well, it was part of a larger social media or, or crowdsourcing campaign that was really driven by um, Carmen Ortiz, who was then the U.S. Uh, federal prosecutor, U.S. District Attorney for Massachusetts. And that goes back to, I mean, you go back to uh, June of 2012, where it was announced that they were going to do the social media campaign. And um, in the Boston Globe article about it, there was no, no, no response by the FBI. And, and in the article, it says 
The Gardner Museum refused to comment about this social media campaign. However, Anthony Amore said in Plymouth a few weeks ago that he's optimistic the paintings will be found. So I thought that was, I thought, wait, the federal government just announced they're going to spend millions of dollars on a social media campaign and they're not including, and, and the Gardner Museum doesn't want to comment about it. So that made me think maybe there was some mixed feelings about whether this was the right way to go. Mm-hmm. Then you had the big meeting, the uh, 2013 anniversary meeting where they said, we know who the guys are. We think the paintings went through Philadelphia. And that was another component of the social media campaign. And then it's sort of, then the next thing, the marathon bombing kind of took center stage and that was pretty much forgotten. There was another part of the crowdsourcing was the, and it was kind of a more of a defensive component of it was they thought they were going to be getting a lot of questions around the 25th anniversary and in anticipation of it, they put out a lot of information at that point at the anniversary. And also that coincided with Kirk Chan's Master Thieves book coming out. Then a few months after that, August, that's when they put out this six and a half minute excerpt of the surveillance video from the night before, which showed someone coming into the museum after about 24 hours before the um, actual heist. Yeah, like almost exactly 24 hours, right? Right. And... Um, Anthony Amore has claimed credit for saying, I said, you know, I, I said to a reporter, maybe it was a dry run. And but he he I saw him at a like a book signing and he said he regretted that. And he didn't really think that was a fair characterization. He was just sort of speaking off the top of his head, perhaps. Because on last scene, the podcast last scene about the Gardner heist done by WBUR and the Boston Globe, Anthony Mori said that he did believe that they identified this person and that he wasn't involved in the heist. Right. Well, there's been sort of an interesting, mysterious kind of aspect to this. Yeah. Okay, so first of all, there has never, no one from the FBI or even Anthony Amore has specifically spoken on the record about anything that's in the video. Like, the car comes down, it looks kind of funny, or, or any kind of talk. There has been information about what, what the contents of the video are. However, um, it's been kind of inaccurate. Um, in the Boston Globe, they said that, um, that the, the guy came in, the man can be seen leaving his car after the other guard left. Well, that's not true. The other guard can be seen viewing the car coming down the road, and the car had already parked before the other guard, Joe Mulvey, left. And we know his name is Joe Mulvey, thanks to episode four or whatever, the one, the Marge Galis episode. That's the only time the fact that he's, that he's been identified as Joe Mulvey. Episode four of? Oh, well, Empty Frames. Oh, okay. Was of, sure. of the first season. So that's <laughs> one of the details that came out. His name has never been mentioned. He's been made into an icon. Cody Azawa, the art, a famous artist, has done pictures of the guards standing there, mutely not doing anything. And um, also the Boston Globe used it for their promo for last scene of the guards standing there. Well, he does a lot. So to have him standing there... It, that's what he happens to be doing in the very first frame where you see him. But right. that's not Good what... Good call, but, yeah. <laughs> okay, but so, there's yeah. a lot going on in, the, in there, including with Joe Mulvey. Yeah, so you have to really kind of look at the video to see it all because, like you said, if you look at the first frame or the, or the, the thumbnail in a lot, of, a lot of cases is of this guy, yeah. this fellow Joe, uh, the, one of the security guys. Joe Mulvey. Right, and he's kind of an older fella. Right. And he's standing there. And so that is not the guy who comes in. Who, no. who pulls his car. And, he, and it's not the guard that lets him in. Right. The other one is Rick Abath, who's also in the video. Okay, so if you go to Google or Bing, you can type in Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum night before video, and you, it'll bring you right to the YouTube link. So anyone yeah. listening now can go there. You can click on that link, and you can see this video. It starts with Joe Mulvey at the security desk talking over to... Talking over to Rick Abath, the other guard, at first. And okay. Rick is kind of out of frame, sort of almost yeah. underneath the camera, but yeah. you could see his hat on the counter. Right. Sort and of a cowboy hat. Yeah, right. yeah, as he wore the next night, too, but uh, But, but not now he's not wearing it. And I think... Color looks like. I speculate that that is a stage direction, that when the visitor comes in, he knows where, where he is and where he is not on, because the outer brim of the hat is the exact spot where you're not on camera. So that's another, there's all kinds of aspects to the video that you could speculate about, about how much intent and what's going on and how choreographed 
one might hear you say that and say you're being a bit conspiratorial and you're looking into this a little too deeply. What well, I probably your... looked a little too deeply. There's like 147,000 visits on YouTube. I think half of them might be me. <laughs> okay, so, so yes, you don't I, deny I, that. I, 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 but I'm being conspiratorial and saying if Rick Abath was involved, maybe there was organized efforts going on, not being conspiratorial. I mean, obviously, if he was involved, there is a conspiracy. If he wasn't, then there wasn't. Oh, you're playing devil, yeah. devil's advocate yeah. here because, I mean, he's the only other one in the video. Like, right. what, I guess my point is, what is he hiding from? Uh, the, the well, that might knows... be where he naturally stands. They don't really right. want to record him. Right, right. But I, I guess your argument might be he's trying to find where the line is so he can avoid well, it the next night? Well, when the visitor comes in, mm -hmm. he stands mostly kind of in, kind of out Yeah, on that on that right by the hat you're saying. yeah so but so if the visitor he could comes say in and he's right by the hat if he if that visitor wants to be out of frame on the security all he has to do is stay to the right of his right of the hat right which he doesn't really do very successfully but okay now when you're watching the video it it cuts between the inside of the museum right the security desk with the position of the camera aimed towards the door that goes into that little breezeway before you go to the main door outside. And right. great HD quality, want to say. Oh, oh, it's high def. <laughs> Blu-ray quality. No grain, Blu-ray. <laughs> but it cuts between that and is it simultaneous footage of the car no. on uh, Palace Road coming down? No. Okay. No, it's, it's in sequence. So for a while we'll be outside and then it will show and the, and the, and the time stamp changes back and forth so it's con con contiguous okay one at one point it's showing you outside and the other point it's showing you inside i think that's important to note because yeah. a lot of time is taken when you first see this video to understand what you're watching and where you're watching it and right. when you're watching it and and i was being sarcastic earlier the the video's in black and white and it's uh the resolution isn't great and it is actually even like jumping um like an old vhs tape would and and even the picture kind of bends at points too, so really is not a great video. It's well, it hasn't it, been very well maintained. That is obviously. true too. So it was lost for years. Yeah. Okay. Was, let's talk about the maintenance of this. Yeah. Okay. It was not lost, according to Vincent Lizzie, who was head of the Boston uh, FBI office. He did an interview a couple of days after it was released with um, um, Kevin Cullen. And he said, we've known all along about it. We didn't think it was of particular use, and we've been aware of it. And what's come out is that around 2013, empty frame says 2010, but that's not right. It was around oh, 2013. Shit. You meant last scene. said Last scene, sorry. Oh, last scene. okay, yeah, good. Sorry. Um, pulled, that Robert Fisher, who was at the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office, pulled some of the old evidence, and he found it. I think there's signs that it may have, there might have been some kind of controversy about whether or not to release it but it was not once it was put out there was really nothing done to support the video in terms of giving information like how tall we've determined how tall the person is or um, other kind of information or making sure people like Marge Galis and other security guards and employees made sure they saw it or you know different things they could have done in support of the of the uh, release of the video was not done at all. Okay, so what is the first thing as you're watching this okay. that stands out to you as being somewhat well? There's so much. Or I mean, it's, it's sort of there's a lot. So why don't we start from the very beginning? Okay, so it starts out you don't see anything. There's really not a couple of good points. You see, you see Joe Mulvey. He starts to go out, and then he at the last minute he changes his mind and he goes back and he he's lingering at that seems to be his spot, his home base, and he starts having a conversation with with the other guard, Rick Abath. And it sounds like he's trying to make a point. He's, you know, gesturing with his hand, and he's he's trying to say something kind of serious. It's probably about the Patriots. Yeah, it could be. could be about anything. Um, so he's making a point. And then the next thing, it looks like there's something in his left hand now. He has a huge hand, obviously, but um, it looks like maybe he has something. Then all of a sudden he starts striding down, and this coincides with the appearance of the car. Right. Okay. So, yeah. so we'll, just, oh. we'll, we'll pause there, and then Abbott's on the phone. Yeah. Now Abbott's on the phone. Okay. And and he is looking. They're looking at the monitor. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so uh, note of record here: we just paused at fifty fifty one seconds. Okay. And it's it actually paused at a really interesting spot because it looks like it's right in between a jump. When, yeah. When you said that it it coincides with a car pulling down the road, it's actually a car backing up the wrong way down Palace Road. Right. To the like the yeah. security entrance. Yeah, going the wrong way on a one way street in reverse with the headlights off. And right. something else to note, 
Rick Abbott, who looks a lot like that guy from Workaholics. <laughs> yeah, I guess Blake, so. Blake from Workaholics. From Workaholics. So Rick Abbott is, is on a phone right now, and yeah. it does look like they're both looking at a monitor. Right. He might or, be sitting. Or they're looking in the same direction. I was thinking maybe he was calling a pager, possibly. Because this is before cell phones, so you have to kind of put yourself in the technology of the time and pager technology. So he might be signaling to someone through a pager. Okay, good good point. Yeah. So what it wasn't Oracle. was Larry O'Brien outside in his car on the phone being like, hey, I'm outside. Can you let me in? I'm about to come right. up to the door. Well, he would have a master key anyway because he, he was an assistant supervisor. So he wouldn't need to... He wouldn't need a key or even to announce himself. He might not want to announce himself. I guess I was getting get yeah. to the cell phone thing, though. Yeah, right. More. Okay, yeah. because... There were no cell phones. Right. I guess, but maybe there were cell Car phones. phone, maybe, but probably not. not a, a, that was kind of a hoity-toity thing back then. Right. And it goes with a limo. But maybe. your point about whether it was a cell phone or a car phone is pretty much a moot point after hearing that he had a master key and he probably wouldn't even want them to know because why would he announce as his, their boss? Why would he announce that he's coming? I don't know. But I, I don't yeah. think, it, from from what I've heard about the security gu- guidelines, it, it was like they, they weren't supposed to let anyone in, even, even Larry O'Brien if he showed up. So they were breaking guidelines all over the place. I think they were allowed, I think a, a supervisor would, would have a reason to go in. They were not, they, they were clearly, it was, People generally agree that a lot of people were coming in that should not have been allowed. Yeah. But Ann Hawley used to come in from time to time. Yeah. But they it's, yeah. it seemed like they definitely played fast and loose with right. uh, who came in yeah. um, to the point where uh, Rick Abbott even brought friends in who were uh, tripping on mushrooms to view the artwork at one point. Again, right. per last scene, uh, that's, that's the only place I had heard that. But I thought that was pretty... Uh, pretty interesting he brought his friends in after they had drank some kind of magic mushroom shake and they had a party and it made me really jealous well one thing is is that he came in with maybe one friend if he has a book he started writing a book about his experiences and they clearly are referencing that book which is on facebook the pages from that book and they kind of stray from the facts and and exaggerate a little bit on the extent of that but yeah it's true but he didn't bring in a bunch of friends yeah but there were maybe four or five people in there at the time and some of them were tripping and this is from something that rick abbott wrote himself himself. wrote yeah okay yeah Yeah. so so we have uh liberties that are being taken with rick abbott's own words and i think other guards too it sounded like uh, pizzas were regularly delivered inside the museum they would (laughs) buzz them in yeah. To deliver pizza right to the door. Well, which was completely breaking protocol. But someone like a 51-year-old assistant supervisor who used to be a lieutenant colonel in the Army, he's coming down the road. It doesn't make sense that he would come down the road in reverse, park three feet from the curb, not even a, a, ahead of the door. Right. Okay. So, so, so the point, back to the point. Yeah. Sorry, long way to get yeah. oh, get away from that. But this, is second, how but we, this is how we get these details This is how out. we do it. Rick Abbott was not talking to Larry O'Brien or the person yeah, who came in. Yeah, in the car. Who just, on right. the phone. Yeah. Right. On the phone at 51 seconds. Right. Okay. You just said that um, this is a former military. Retired lieutenant colonel. Retired lieutenant colonel, 51 Career years officer. old. And this is this is, this is is Larry O'Brien that, that you're speaking of. Yes. And you're not in agreement that he was the one driving the car in reverse down the road. No, I don't think okay. it looks like him, and its behavior is not consistent. He would know that he was being that he was on, he was being on, he's on surveillance tape, and that the surveillance tape was being recorded. So why would he? That you all you have to do is go around the block, and there's no traffic at that hour. So he saved himself maybe a minute's driving by doing that. There's no logical reason why a supervisor would want to come down a one-way street that way. I'd make the argument that anyone really familiar with an area would take that liberty. Like, I've done that before in in front of my own house. You know what I mean? I do do that regularly when I switch the cars in the driveway, actually. So uh, I think, to me, it seems like familiarity. Where would he be coming from? His home? Yeah, in Somerville on Alpine Street in Somerville. So he'd be coming down 93, the old uh, Mystic Tobin Bridge, and down Starrow Drive. So I'm not even sure it would make sense that he would be coming in that way. It wouldn't even make sense for him to come in that way. I, I would think, no, I don't think so, but I'm not sure. He might have a, a way, but then why would he have his headlights off? That, is, his headlights that is another off. fine That point. is a great question. Right. And then why would he park three feet from the curb, and why wouldn't he park at the door? Why would he park 
forward of the door. I don't know. And how quick was he in there? He was in there for really just like the length of this video? He was in there for three. The person, the visitor, Mm -hmm. was in there for three minutes and 15 seconds. And for two minutes and 30 seconds of that time, they're off camera and maybe in another gal in a gallery or doing something. There's no evidence that they are even anywhere near where that they're even in the security station Mm -hmm. for the two two minutes and 30 seconds between second 51 and you know a minute four so i i'm starting to see why you said that that hat could be a marker because it is it is exactly placed at the frame right at the edge of the frame right it's interesting and he usually wore his hat so why is it there so then you have Joe Mulvey, he's studying the video. Okay, you see how it goes out and goes yep. back on? And then right when that happens, he moves. He starts heading out. He's no longer he, watching it. He being Joe Mulvey. Right. Okay. So there's a blocking of, the, of, the, of that reflection, of that light in the car. And as soon as it does, he moves. So given that this is not the time of cell phones, this could be a signal of, okay, that's the all clear for him to go outside. And that might explain why it's three feet from the curb and not in front of the door. And then when it flips back, he's walking to the door. Well, if it is O'Brien, why is he driving the car in reverse down the road? Why is he parking so far away from the door? It's a straight road. Right. Why He's got the option to drive all the way down to the door and then tuck his car closer to the curb, which he doesn't do. Familiarity, right. and he knows he's only going to be in there for a couple minutes? Well, I would say if he was familiar with the road, he would know not to park in the middle of the road, <laughs> like 10 I mean, feet up from the door. Yeah, it seems hasty to me. One thing is is that the Boston Globe reported that Mulvey is going on his rounds. Okay. So the theory is, okay, he's going on his rounds, and then the visitor comes in. He is not going on his rounds. There's no way to get into the galleries from that door that you see him going out. Okay. That door only leads to Palace Road. And I, I, I sent a tweet to Marge Galas, and I said, "Is this?" I'm saying I don't think this goes anyplace else but Palace Road. And she says, "Well, your rounds could include outdoors." So, well, that she is was true. acknowledging that. Yeah, he could have been going. He might have been going on his rounds outdoors, but, what but he we was just not saw, going on his rounds in a gallery. What we just saw in the breakdown was that they're talking, a car shows up, they see it in the monitor. Yeah. Rick Abbott picks up a phone, and and the other guard, Joe Mulvey, heads out to- Palace Road. Palace Road. So it looks, the appearance is, is that they look down and say, oh, there's that car. Yeah. Or there's a car. Yeah. And Joe goes outside, and right. Rick Abbott stays inside. Now, is this would this be common practice for a security officer to go outside to check on a car that would just be parked there? But well, that was never addressed. Um, that it was possible. You know, I've never even it never occurred to me that he was going out to check the car. He's he. If you look at his body language as the car is coming, they they look sort of amused and intrigued by the car, but they don't look like there's it's any particular threat. I would say if it were a threat, then they probably wouldn't have gone out so soon we just saw the seconds tick by and it's literally like maybe two seconds before they make a decision to go outside so i'm not saying that this is a fact but it does look like they know that car okay well in any case he's now has headed outside now right i'm i think the fact that he lingers there might be we never see him go outside we don't see the door open as we do with the visitor later that he might have timed it so that he would go outside when the visitor opens the door, so that he for... knows when he no. So when he goes out, he's not there, standing there by the door right. with the car there. Right. He uses so, the opportunity. Yeah. To go so through that the door lingering the that he just sort of does, which is, seems very precise and choreographed, possibly. That's just speculation, though. In any case, he's heading outside, but he is not shown outside. Okay. So okay. what else can we see in the video? So okay, l- let's, let's keep going. The, let's get to the visitor coming in, okay. and then am I incorrect that he goes back out? Okay, no, he does go back out. You're right. And then he comes back in. Okay, so the first thing we see is we don't see him go in the first time. So you're going to go with the main two good points of reference for this watching this video are minute at two zero zero two minute mark and the five minute mark. Two minute mark, you see the visitor coming out of the building. Wait a second. He just got in. He just got in and he's going out and it was never picked up him going in the building. Yeah. We never see the door opening for him to go in. We only see him it opening going out. And then what happens is, and you can see, is that the door is left open as he returns to the car. So he travels out to the car for 20 seconds, turns on the lights of the car, and returns to the museum, and he leaves the door open. 
while he makes that quick trip back. back. And when he comes back, Abath only buzzes him once. So Abath knows that that this door has been left open. So wait, now his car lights are on. Now his car lights are on, yes. Okay. There's some interesting aspects of when he makes his initial trip to the, when you see him, you see the visitor come out and go from the car to the museum, traveling this gloom outside of the door when it's closed. You can't see anything. But when he makes the trip from his car to the, to the museum, we can, see, we can say fairly convincingly that he's not delivering food. He's going too fast. He's spinning around. He's parked three feet from the curb. I don't, I, why would it, Those delivery guys are very efficient, very time management conscious. They park as close to the door as they can. And he's not carrying a bundle. Yeah, we don't see any food. Right. So we can say, okay, we eliminate that. We can eliminate, let's say it's a drug deal. Someone who's carrying a lot of drugs isn't going to be that conspicuous and go down the street in the middle of the night and, and park three feet from the curb either. Does seem like a weird time to get your drugs. Right. So you're at just, work in the middle of the night. So you're eliminating all of these possibilities. Actually, it seems like might be a good time to get. Could some be drugs. the best time to do it. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah. it it kind of eliminates. He's not going to be a drug dealer very long if he's being that careless. And again, he would park closer to the door. Want to be as inconspicuous as possible. Plus, there's the leaving the door open, is you know very suspicious and not consistent with really. It being anybody. The thing to me that that uh, makes me question the Larry O'Brien account is uh, that the the visitor just doesn't look like he's that old. He looks like he's like late twenties, early thirties. Yeah, looks like he's like yeah. thirty. Right, and and Larry O'Brien had gray hair. By that time, he was fifty one. That was he's my next question army. because um, the the visitor doesn't have gray hair. You can it's black. The video is black and white, so right. you're limited a little bit, but. Um, it looks Dark. like it has color. It looks like it is brown or black. Am I wrong on that, guys? No, oh, no, no. No, I agree. Black. And also his brother or said brown. that this person has wavy hair. There's cowlicks in his hair. And his brother said, that's not my brother. He has very flat hair. Actually, his brother was one of the only people to say that's not my brother. That's not Larry O'Brien. Well, there were there were a few. There were a couple. It was some, oh, okay. A couple of the guards said no. So there was some. It's a matter of how, how hard do you want to uh, look for people who say it's not him. Um, okay, but so they had this some is, on both sides. If this is not Larry O'Brien, this is, in my opinion, somebody that they at least know because they saw or expected because they weren't looking at what is perceived to be the monitor and they weren't looking at it for long enough to say to each other, who is this? This car's driving down here in reverse. Oh, that's something. Like, right. It just looks like they knew who that was. Right. Because it could have been anybody. Right. I mean, it could have been anybody who was driving down, you know, trying to get directions for themselves, maybe looking at a map or something, and then realizing that, you know, where they had to go, and then they leave. Do you the think only, that the security right. guards would have, like, thought about that and waited to see what that car would have done? The only time you really that. see any kind of startle reflex in Mulvey through all of this is when he's first told that it appears, or you see the lights of the cars coming back, and I imagine that Abat said, here comes a car. And then all of a sudden, he's sort of in this position of kind of rushing down. He looks like he's rushing. He's very intent and focused on coming down and viewing it on the monitor, in my view. But what are they doing? Uh, you, As you can see him kind of in the corner, and, and that maybe one of the better looks of the visitor, um, it, it looks like his hair is dark. It doesn't look like it's light. Um, but it looks like, almost like they're flipping through some kind of book or right. maybe some kind of some kind okay. of exchange happening. All right. And he walks out and he's got a coat. He looks like he's got a little bit of a bald spot on the top of his yep. head. I thought so too, but I think that that might be a light. Could it be. Just, yeah, yeah, it could be reflecting light, yeah. But you can see uh, Abbott's head pretty much the whole time. Yeah, he's bobbing. His head's bobbing in and out. I just want to be sure that this isn't like a delivery driver who pulls up and then they're like, oh, hey, leave your lights on if you're going to park there. And he runs back out and puts them on and then he comes back in and then he does the transaction and then he leaves. Yeah, well, so what you do is you you look. It's only only six minutes and 40 seconds, right? Yeah. There's... Two, min- two minutes and 30 seconds in the middle that's dead. There's a, like a minute at the end that's of no use. So you go through it and you watch it say, let's look at it as and look for all the reasons why it's a food mm-hmm. delivery guy. Let's look at it. That's a friend. And you can go through all the different scenarios. Yeah. I don't see a food delivery guy, I don't know, making change with his little plastic. I, I don't it looked, know. looked like he was opening a bag to me. Here's uh, an argument against the uh, food delivery. 
I feel like if Maldi were to greet a food delivery person, then he would have just done the exchange right there at the door. And the food delivery person might even not want to come in because his car's there. And then it really doesn't make sense to say, oh, you should turn your lights on. The food delivery person might say, well, I'm only going to be here for like two seconds. I agree that the uh, the time of the interaction is the major strike against the food, for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, because, it, it, yeah, most food deliveries are very, very quick. They're like less than a minute. Right. They want to get in and out. But... If, I mean, just, as, but if he did come in, he, he would have just put it right on the desk where there's plenty of room uh, to put the knows? food down. Who knows? Who knows what, what would have happened? We're, you know. <laughs> We're in the speculation <laughs> zone here. But, uh, yeah, I, I agree that the, for that reason it, it's probably not. But also it could be just one artistic guy delivering food to another, and he's like, oh, my God, we're in a museum. Oh, can I look around? Oh, oh, let me see your drawings. And then he leaves. Sure. <laughs> yeah, it could be. Could but be. The, but either let's way, remember that the greatest crime and property crime in the history of the universe hadn't happened yet. Yeah, happened the next day. Like twenty-four happened hours later. Right. Yet, yeah. Though. Yeah. Um, but what we do agree on is that right that both Abbott and Mulvey must have known or been aware of this person arriving. It di- it yes. definitely looks like it. Yeah, yeah. Whether it's like Abbott saying, "Oh, that's the that's my Chinese food delivery guy," mm-hmm. or that's Larry O'Brien. But their decision to identify and then let this person in, make the moves to let this person in, happened in like four seconds. Amore was interviewed by Jim Browdy on the uh, on on Greater Boston on August 11th, like six days after it was out, and he said that they that nobody said anything about the people being let in. So. Not only were they there, but Rick Abath and Joe Mulvey never said, yeah, we've let in a visitor. Well, probably because it was so common, it sounds like. Well, I mean, I would think it would be pretty important. Anything unusual happen on your shift? Or what's what do you know? Who's been in the museum? They'd probably want to know anyone who had been in the museum for the past week. Mm. So, And they never mentioned that, oh, yeah, by the way, someone came in, my buddy, but it's really nothing. They would probably have the video. Alternate theory. Uh, the FBI and Amore and such know that it's not Larry O'Brien. He's passed away. Uh, they're not going to get a strong rebuttal from him about that. And they know that that person was involved in the heist the next night. So they put it out there to see what shakes loose. As I mentioned, when they originally started, Carmen Ortiz wanted to do the social media crowdsourcing. It was on. It was after Bulger. But that doesn't include uh, being truthful to the public necessarily. You don't right. have to be. There's no. Yeah, it's crowdsourcing no versus crowdsourcing. <laughs> that's right. So there oh, might be nice. some crowdsourcing going. Sure, on. Sure, that's strategic in some cases. Sure. Yeah. I think that I'm not sure that the FBI was really very happy that this was coming out because of the fact that they haven't supported it. So yeah. I think it might have been an initiative of Carmen Ortiz and the district attorney's office with, you know, the the FBI grumbling coming along and not really enthusiastic about it. Of course, no one expected uh, them to be exposed on the empty frames airways. Season two. That's what we did. We we, we, lull, gotcha. we lulled them all to sleep with five episodes having nothing to do with the Isabella Stewart Garden Museum heist. And then we <laughs> then they were like, whoa, what's this? First of all, when this happened, it was called in the Boston Globe that it spurred a, quote, internet frenzy trying to figure out who this was. So there's mass hysteria. Like, let this put this video out. And then on May 23rd of 2017, the Boston Globe did an article about how the, the first article about how the reward was being doubled, doubled to 10 million, right? And then, oh, by the way, you know, 12 paragraphs down, oh yeah, we, last week we called up the, the FBI and asked them about what the deal is with the video, and they said they know who it is and it's not anyone involved. So you had all this big rollout. I mean, there's still people who hadn't seen that article. I know Marge Galis hadn't seen it. And they're still wondering, like, gee, I wonder who that is and and still working at it. I think they had a, a responsibility to announce we know who it is and maybe share a little bit, a few of the details if everything was, you know, oh, it's perfectly fine. It's, you know, nobody that was involved in the heist. Was Simply involved. a coincidence. Right. It sounds like to me you're indicating that the that the globe is somehow maybe trying to control the narrative of this. Well, I don't think they're trying to control the narrative so much as they're they're access driven, and so they're not really challenging or pushing back on the talking points that they're getting. And I don't think the talking points are a hundred percent on the level. 
Now, there's a reviewer for The Globe who reviewed Empty Frames season right. one right. Um, poorly, let me add. And then he said that he was going to, he's, he's not being favorite favoritism or none of that involved. And he said he was going to review Last Scene. Based on my recollection, he reviewed Empty Frames after episode one. Episode one was Tim and I along with Mr. K, who got us involved in this. We did the broad strokes of the heist, and we did sort of a, here's what we're going to do, here's our intentions with the podcast. And Ty Burr gave a scathing review of episode one, and then went on to say what his intentions were with the Boston Globe WBUR joint podcast. Here, the reviewer Ty Burr says, for the record, I wrote this before finding out, I wrote this scathing review of Empty Frames, before finding out that The Globe will be launching its own upcoming podcast on the Gardner Heist in partnership with WBUR. When it's available, I'll offer my honest opinion of that as well. Right. So why don't you pull up his honest opinion of um, last scene? Oh, okay. Let me... Let's, um, oh, oh, you know what? He actually never wrote one. Never did. Okay. Interesting. That's so interesting. Someone, some people would say that was a complete con- Conflict of interest. He might. Now, we wouldn't say that here at Empty Frames because that would be taking the low hanging fruit. But I, I've heard that some people think that that's really a weird conflict of interest on his part. Well, look at all the other reviews that he did for other podcasts. Yeah. Just in general. Well, he clearly listens to a lot of podcasts. I'd be shocked if he didn't listen to Last Scene. Anthony Mori said on a different podcast, I don't remember the name of it recently, he said, unfortunately, there was no new leads or fresh material to work with that came out of people contacting him as a result of the last scene podcast i don't really see a lot of um information that came out i can tell you some things that i found very enlightening that came out of empty frames and i'm sure that and i've said this before that you know historians are going to be much more interested in what what um empty frames did than what last scene did because what last scene did they claimed they were doing a deep dive but they didn't they just rehashed the talking points we are the home of the original deep dive and that's what we just did yes Touch this. Yeah, that's how we living and you know can't touch this.